0: Have you ever wondered what it's like to perform an autopsy? Ever wanted to know how accurate your favorite crime drama is? If you're brave enough,
1: join Join us
0: inside inside the the morgue. morgue. Hi, everybody. And welcome back to Inside the Morgue, where your forensic-obsessed hosts, Jess and Alice. And this week, this is our Christmas-themed episode. Merry Merry Christmas. Christmas! This is our Christmas episode because the holidays are coming up, and we just wanted to get into the spirit. And we have said before that it's always spooky season in the morgue, but, you know, Christmas is the exception to that rule. Also... Christmas can be spooky. Nightmare Before Christmas? (laughs) Nightmare Before Christmas? Even A Christmas Carol. That's a ghost story. True. I'm going to get nerdy, but in like Victorian era times, ghost stories were actually more popular around Christmas time, and they would tell them around the fire. What's that famous song, We'll Tell Tales of the Glories and Ghost Stories from Christmases Long, Long Ago? I love that. I love that fact. Christmas is spooky. I learned that on the Strange and Unusual podcast by Alison Horrocks. Highly recommend. Another spooky queen. So we're getting into the spirit of Christmas by watching NCIS season 6 episode 10 titled Silent Night. So without further ado, let's get into it.
1: So we open to a delivery man approaching a very Christmas decorated house. He rings the bell and gets no response so he knocks and then peeks through the window and he sees two people collapsed on the floor bleeding and then another man approaches the window and scares the delivery man and me too <laughs> <laughs> was so I did scared. jump a little. Back at the office, the team is getting ready for Christmas. Mickey gets a call that a Detective Kemp from Metro Homicide is on the way up, and he wants to speak with Gibbs. Dinozo reveals that he went on
0: four dates with Detective Kemp's wife. I love the tea. Like, I love the gossip in the office. They
1: always talk gossip, and I love it. There's always office drama. I love it. Kemp is coming to discuss a home invasion robbery, which was the scene that we saw in the beginning, and he comes in and speaks to Gibbs about the case. He said they found prints at the scene and ran them through APHIS. So I give this a green flag, and we've talked about APHIS before, so we're not going to like go into what the acronym stands for because we already know. But the APHIS database can perform tasks like searching a known 10-print against a 10-print database, they can search a latent print against a 10-print database, search latent against a latent database, and they can also seek a new 10-print against any unsolved latents. So there has been, in the past few years, further enhancements, including introducing palm prints in terms of identification. There's been some successes, but all depends on various factors, notably the clarity of images and the degree of correspondence between the search print and the database print. So, one's not good, and the other's good, you might not get a match. But they do get a hit for a man named Ned Quinn, who was a former petty officer and Vietnam war vet, which is why he's involved with the NCIS team. And they had a witness talk to a sketch artist, and they have a picture of what the witness saw. I'm sure we all know what a sketch artist does. They sketch a composite of criminal suspects as unidentified persons. They also create age progression sketches
0: of suspects and missing persons. We're getting into forensic artistry. That, it's like magic to me. Yeah, like the fact that they get it perfectly. I don't know how they do that. I I like to draw and I like art and I'm, I'm pretty good at it. I'm okay. But like, I... F- faces and people no I can never get right drawing faces is so hard drawing the eyes evenly no. I, have you ever seen it's like a meme a kid who like drew he drew like a stick figure and he's like this is the man that I saw robbing the bank and they're like please catch <laughs> catch robber based <laughs> off of the sketch and they like photoshop the stick figure in a mugshot it that that would be me That would be me as a sketch artist. That is something
1: that I know I couldn't do. And there's a few different disciplines within forensic artistry. And some of this includes composite art, image modification and age progression, and postmortem facial reconstruction. And forensic artists have mainly transitioned into digital sketches and reconstructions and have kind of strayed away from the classic paper and pencil sketch just because of how we're
0: all so into Mm digitalness today. Yeah, very high tech today. I love that, and this is maybe something not a lot of people think about, or maybe... It was just me until I got involved in forensics. Forensics is such a wide field. Yeah. You know, and it's I feel like when people hear forensics, they typically think of like, oh, DNA, lab testing, all this, which, yeah, that is a big chunk of it. But it's also there's artists, there's forensic accountants, forensic psychiatry. Yeah, there's such a it's such a diverse field. Mm -hmm. Just it's just something that has never ceased to amaze me, like how many different types of forensics jobs there are out there.
1: Back in the show, Mickey looks up Quinn in their database and finds him. Based on the sketch artist's picture, it kind of looks like an older version of this man's military ID. But according to their database, this man had died in a fire in 1991. And according to Kemp, the VA records show that Quinn is buried in Arlington. Mickey pulls up the death certificate, and our beloved Emmy, Ducky, was the one who conducted the autopsy back in 91, and he signed the DC. No, Ducky! So we cut to Ducky and Abby discussing Christmas traditions, like sixpence being baked into Christmas pudding, and Ducky laments that he doesn't have any extended family to share the tradition with, and Abby promises that next year she will make it with him. Gibbs shows up, and he talks about the case with Ducky, and Ducky is understandably startled and horrified that he is the one who signed the DC. Cut to the team doing more research on Ned Quinn, and this man graduated with honors from the University of Virginia, and he was accepted to their medical school but didn't end up going, and he joined the Navy instead and became a corpsman. He came home from Vietnam in 1972 and was treated at the VA for PTSD. Quinn became addicted to methamphetamine and was in and out of rehab. So, PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder, is a very severe mental health condition that's often triggered by terrifying events and is very common for veterans. And methamphetamine, we've talked about this before in some past episodes, it's a powerful and very addictive stimulant that affects the central nervous system. And this is also a very common drug that those suffering with PTSD often turn to in order to cope with all of those symptoms and and methamphetamine is a prescription drug but crystal meth is the illegal version of that so his wife left him in 1980 and got custody of their three-year-old daughter quinn started living on the street after that and he supposedly died in this fire with seven other people in a halfway house there were no traces of quinn until these fingerprints showed up at the murder scene Cut to Ducky, going over Ned Quinn's autopsy report from 91. He's reviewing the scene photos, and he's re-listening to the dictation, which is all definitely a green flag. Our doctors do this for their old cases as well, and just because it's impossible to remember every single detail from every single case that you've worked on, and that's why we do so much documentation during the autopsy. So if someone needs to go back and review everything... If the case goes to trial, or if another doctor is going to take a look for a second opinion, they can make sense of everything. In his dictation, we hear him describe the injuries on the deceased, who was supposedly Quinn. He describes massive charring and pugilistic contraction of extremities, which is also another green flag, so the charring and pugilistic contractions can happen when there is a fire. A pugilistic position is a postmortem, kind of boxer-like position. There's like the flexed elbows, the knees, and the clenched fists, and this is all just caused by the shrinkage of body tissue and the muscle due to dehydration during the heating from the fire. There's also heat fractures and evulsion of the brain, large and small intestines. Evulsion. this is just like a fancy medical term it's like a more severe form of a laceration in which the soft tissue musculature and or the bone are torn away from the points of attachment so all of these injuries are what you would see in a fire case and gibbs asks if ducky made a mistake in 1991 and ducky gets really defensive and says that the city me was unable to get a positive id from the charred remains Um, There is a difference between positive and presumptive ID, so the positive ID is based on a comparison of fingerprints or other biometric identification techniques, and this is when you've successfully and conclusively ID'd someone. And a presumptive ID does not guarantee that your ID is really 100% that this is that person. It's usually just enough evidence that you can kind of presume the ID is correct. This is what happened in Ducky's case. So Ducky was called in in the hopes that Quinn's veteran medical and dental records could assist in confirming the ID of him. However, being that the victim had a drug use history, he suffered from something called meth mouth. And this is basically when all of your teeth deteriorate. And this kind of made the dental match impossible in a sense. So, we actually saw this on a case the other day that we worked on, mm-hmm. and so meth mouth, if you've never heard of it or seen it, it's basically extreme tooth decay by meth users, and their teeth become really black, stained, and they're basically rotting out of their mouths. And this happens because meth is really acidic and corrosive, and it erodes the tooth's protective enamel coating, and then the factors of like poor oral hygiene and tooth grinding come into play. So you basically have no, no teeth left in your mouth, or they're all just, like, really grinded away. And that is the end result of all of that.
0: Yeah, it is not pretty. So DNA wasn't an option back in 1991, so all they had to go by was an examination of the skull and measurement of the bones. And for those of you that don't know, forensics is kind of, like, a fairly new practice. Forensic DNA analysis was introduced first in the 1980s by Dr. Alec Jeffries at the University of Leicester when he realized that DNA contained sequences that continued to repeat next to each other. He also figured out that these sequences that were repeated were different from each individual. Later, in 1987, genetic fingerprinting was made available. In the U.S. in that same year, DNA testing was first used on a case where a man was accused of raping a woman during a burglary. Because of DNA testing, it was proven that the DNA from the suspect matched the DNA that was collected at the scene, and this man was convicted. All Ducky could determine from the skull and bone measurements was that the victim was a Caucasian male who was about 6'2 and about 40 years old, which fit Quinn's description. When you have a case where all you can go off is the anthropology exam, there are certain features on the bone that anthropologists will look at to determine sex and the height of the victim. For the skull, a female skull will have a rounder forehead or frontal bone, whereas males' frontal bones will be less rounded and it slopes backwards at a gentler angle. The ridge along the brow is also more prominent in males and smoother in females. You can determine height from the length of the femur bone. If the subject is male, you multiply the length of the bone by 2.32 and add 65.53 and that will give you the victim's height. There are also two ages given at the time of autopsy, the age at the time of death and the overall age. Significant bone loss indicates a more advanced age and the ossification or thickening of the bone is also observed to get the age estimation. And this estimation is usually given in a range, for instance, like 30 to 50 years old. They're not going to give like... He's not 42. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So the body in the show was found in Quinn's room in the house with all of his personal effects. So Ducky and the Emmy both concluded that it must have been Quinn. Also, no one turned up claiming to be Quinn in the last 17 years. Gibbs theorizes that Quinn must have killed this person and covered it up with a fire in order to fake his own death. Ducky finds that Quinn was being treated for his PTSD by a psychiatrist named Dr. Pryor. This doctor is still practicing, and Ducky needs to speak with him ASAP. The show then cuts to a young woman in her house thanking her mother for babysitting her kids while she runs out to do some last-minute Christmas shopping. Very much relate to the last minute Christmas shopping. I feel that on a spiritual level. I do it all the time and it stresses me out every year. And I'm always like, I'm never going to do this this next year. I'm going to be so prepared. Never am. It yeah, always next makes... year comes around. <laughs> it's Christmas is the same time every year. You'd think I wouldn't be surprised when it's Christmas time. Exactly. And I'm still so unprepared every time it's December. So Ziva and McGee arrive at the house and the grandmother opens the door. They say that they are looking for Melissa Fox, who is Quinn's daughter, and she was also the mother that was doing her last-minute Christmas shopping. The grandmother that was babysitting is Connie Wheeler, ex-wife of Ned Quinn. Ziva and McGee explain that they found her ex-husband's fingerprints at a crime scene, and she says that can't be possible because he's dead. Ziva asks if he were alive, where they would be able to find him, and Connie says she can't think of anywhere because Quinn has been out of their lives since she divorced him in 1980. Connie says that if Quinn is still alive, she doesn't want him to know where they are. She says when he came back from Vietnam, he was a drug addict and she tried to help him, but he didn't want any help. So they both moved on. So then we cut to Ducky meeting with Dr. Pryor in the morgue, who (laughs) Dr. Pryor is hilariously dressed up as Santa because he was on his way to an event at the Children's Hospital. I think that we need to get a petition to get a Santa in our morgue. We definitely need a Santa in our
1: morgue. (laughs) Kind of just, like, hire one of those mall Santas to come in for the day? Oh my, do you think any Santa
0: (laughs) would be willing to come to a morgue? If I pay them enough. We have decorations! We do have decorations, (laughs) which are actually our Halloween decorations that we just put Santa in. We have bats and ghosts and skeletons on the wall that we just put little paper Santa hats on, which I think is very festive. I think a Santa would come if he saw those. I think he would. There's got to be a spooky Santa out there. If we pay them enough, they'll come. So Dr. Breyer says that Quinn had suffered from survivor's guilt after Vietnam and had blamed himself for a friend's death. Abby walks in and is very excited about seeing Santa. I would be, too. <laughs> we love Abby. I also love, she, like, I couldn't quite tell if Abby thought this was, like, the real Santa. I couldn't tell if she was acting. Yeah. Yeah. Or if she knew it was Dr. Pryor, but she was, yeah. she was staring at him with Christmas magic in her eyes. I think that she thought that was the real Santa. We love Abby. We support her. Ducky asks Dr. Pryor why Quinn would blame himself for his friend's death, and Dr. Pryor reveals that Quinn and another corpsman had switched patrols a week before their tour was supposed to end, and the other man got killed in an ambush. The last time Dr. Pryor saw Quinn was in 1982, and then he supposedly died in a fire in 1991. So Dr. Pryor has no idea what happened in those nine years before the fire, because he stopped going to see Dr. Pryor. But he doesn't remember Quinn having any violent tendencies. And before leaving, Dr. Pryor gives Ducky his file on Quinn, and he also takes a Santa selfie with Abby, who is just, like, bursting at the seams with Christmas joy. I love Abby. She's so happy. (laughs) I love her vibes. She's like a happy goth, which is the exact vibe I aspire to be. (laughs) So Ducky spends hours reading the file and finds nothing to suggest aggressive or impulsive behavior. McGee finds the corpsman who switched patrols with Quinn and ended up dying as a result. His name is Roger Lawrence Grant. In the file from Dr. Pryor, it's stated that Quinn regularly visited the Vietnam Memorial to pay tribute to his friend. Ducky suggests that if Quinn is still alive, he still might pay a visit to the memorial on the anniversary of his friend's death, December 24th. Which just so happens to be the next day. Ziva and Denozo stake out the memorial. Ziva is still teasing Denozo about dating Detective Kemp's wife. And then she gets a little more serious and asks if he ever regrets not having a wife and a family, especially around the holiday season. Dinozo quickly evades the question and gets out of the car to get a better look at someone at the memorial who he thought might have been Quinn, but I think he was just trying to get out of the car. He didn't want to have this conversation. He was like, I'm going. (laughs) Dinozo's like, I don't talk about feelings. Back at the office, the holiday party is underway and Abby brings Gibbs and McGee some eggnog. This is a total sidebar yet again, but I am obsessed, absolutely obsessed with Abby's Christmas sweater here. It's like a Grim Reaper, but he has, like, instead of, like, the hood, it's like a Christmas hat, and I need it. I need to find, on Etsy, who is making this. I tried to find it on Etsy, and I could (laughs) not. And there were a lot of other cool Christmas spooky sweaters on Etsy, but I want this one. And I cannot find it. Let me email the writers of the show and the costume department and find out where they got this sweater. I'm going to find out where they got it. Or if you're listening and you have an Etsy shop or you know of an Etsy shop or another shop that sells a sweater similar to this, please, I will give you my money if you are selling this sweater. I love it (laughs) so much. So Abby complains that she doesn't know what to get anyone for Christmas and Gibbs, as usual, is no help with the Christmas spirit. McGee comes in with Melissa Fox, Ned Quinn's daughter. She tells Gibbs that her mother doesn't speak for her, and she still wants her father in her life if he is alive. Her mother had protected her from her father so much that she didn't even know when he died, and she had only found out when she did a search for him when she was 21. She says that if he is alive, she'd like to see him. Gibbs then gets a call from Dinozo that they have eyes on Quinn at the Vietnam Memorial. Gibbs goes to the memorial and approaches Quinn. They just start having a casual chat about how emotional it is to be at the memorial. And then Gibbs says, yeah, death is permanent. Except in your case, Ned Quinn. Dun, dun, dun. And then it like fades to black and white for a minute. The man replies, it's been a long time since anybody's called me that. They bring Quinn in for interrogation. Ducky notes that his skin and eyes are clear. He doesn't have any tremors. So it appears that Quinn has since become clean and sober. All he had on him was $8, a key to a long-term hotel downtown, and no ID. Metro police are on their way to pick up Quinn. Gibbs goes in to talk to him and asks why he was at the Taylors' house the night that they were murdered. Quinn says that he didn't kill them. He met the Taylors when he was out on the street looking for work. The Taylors picked him up because they needed help decorating their house for the holidays. He had never met them before. The Taylors just had a tradition of taking someone in and paying them to decorate for the holidays as a way to help the less fortunate. Quinn doesn't know who killed them. He was in the garage getting out decorations, and when he got back inside, he found them on the ground with blood everywhere. The husband was already dead, and the wife was on the couch. He put the wife on the floor and began CPR on her, but it was too late. Quinn says that he fled the scene because he had been dead for
1: 17 years, so he didn't think anyone would believe his story. McGee and Donozo go to the long-term hotel where Quinn was staying, and according to the landlord there, he went by Rembrandt and had been staying there for over 12 years. He says he paid rent every Saturday in cash, and he kept to himself. While searching the apartment, McGee found sketches of Quinn's friend that he had drawn, and back in the office, Gibbs is asking Quinn about the fire in 1991 that Quinn had allegedly died in, and Quinn says he was 10 blocks away when that fire broke out. So Quinn doesn't know the man who died in that room, but that man who had died, died, had told Quinn where to go out and find drugs, and in exchange, Quinn had told him that he could stay in his room while he went out, and when Quinn had gotten back from getting drugs, there were cops and firefighters everywhere, and he was like, okay, I am gonna, like, stay out of this. Quinn didn't identify himself because he thought his ex-wife and his daughter would be better off if he was dead, because then they would have gotten his military benefits. He said he worked for cash and paid cash for everything so that he would never have to use his name. It was easy for him to hide because no one was looking for him. Abby asks Ziva if Gibbs told Quinn that his daughter wants to meet him. Abby says that they have to tell him because it's important to Melissa. Ziva tells her to stay out of it, and then McGee and Donozo come back from Quinn's apartment, and they found nothing to tie him to the murders at the Taylor's house. He appeared to live a non-criminal and invisible life. Ducky says that the city M.E. told him that Mr. Taylor had died from blunt force trauma to the head after being struck with what appeared to be a hammer. So a little bit about what blunt force trauma is. This is the result of when force impacts bone over a wide area, causing discontinuities and fracture lines, and any hard surface or large object can cause this. And Alice and I at autopsy can kind of determine the shape of an object based on the injury. If the cross-sectional shape is round, then it's most likely from a hammer or a bat. If it's an angular shape, then it's probably from a crowbar or a piece of metal. And if the object has a straight long axis... This is normally from a bat. It will leave a straight defect in the bone. And then another thing that we consider at autopsy or like in a case like this is the weight of the object. So light objects cause smaller injuries with few fracture lines and heavy objects cause larger injuries with extensive fracture lines and crushing. And on the skull, there's something called inbending at the site of impact, which is basically where there's the indent itself in the skull. And there's fracture lines that come off of that impact site. So Mrs. Taylor, they say, had died from a heart attack and had ligature marks on her wrists, suggesting that she was restrained with handcuffs. What is most interesting is that Quinn was telling the truth. There were compression bruises on Mrs. Taylor's chest, and this is how they matched Quinn's bloody fingerprints at the scene. This suggests that he had, in fact, attempted to do CPR on her, and that he knew to put her on the floor to perform the CPR. Alice and I often see compression fractures like all the time at autopsies. CPR is definitely, it does more harm than good. And they basically tell you like when you're learning CPR, like if you hear rib fractures, keep going.
0: Yeah. I mean, it does good in that it can save lives. Yeah. But there are going to be additional injuries. So then, yeah, then
1: you have a bunch of broken ribs after. Yeah. But it's very obvious. If this is like a compression fracture from CPR rather than like other trauma, because the broken ribs are usually around the third, fourth, or fifth ribs, we'll often see like an impression on the chest too from a Lucas device, which is this big circular impression. And this device is designed to deliver uninterrupted compressions at a consistent rate, so then like the EMTs and EMS can do other things while this is doing the compressions for them. Yeah, we see a lot of people coming in that have the extensive broken ribs from CPR. And, I mean, obviously that didn't kill them. They're in there for something else. But that's just something that we see, too.
0: Yeah. are you? Have you done CPR training before? Have you ever? No, I have not. And I feel like I should. I know. Same. I've never done it before. I feel like I should, too. We should look into that. We should. <laughs> we should look into that.
1: All right. Back to the show. <laughs> We get so sidetracked. <laughs> I, we we really do. Gibbs goes to talk to his boss about Quinn, and he says that he thinks they are handing an innocent man over to Metro PD. The boss goes to tell Kemp that they are going to hold Quinn to do more investigation on their end. Kemp is very unhappy that they're interfering with his case, but he says that he will be back the day after Christmas with a court order. The team now has to work through Christmas to prove that Quinn is innocent, which would suck. I would hate that. The team is making a plan, and And they'll keep Quinn in interrogation overnight and watch him in shifts. He tells Ducky and Abby to go home and get some rest, and Abby says that she hasn't slept on Christmas Eve since she was four, because she always waited to see Santa. I love her so much. Obviously, she's not real, because
0: this is a TV show. But how She's if, like the perfect character. She can't be real. She's
1: too adorable, and I love her. And then I love this part, too. She wonders aloud if she should have pulled fingerprints from Santa's glass of milk. No, Abby. Santa always wears gloves.
0: Santa always has those white gloves on. True. Which will actually come up. Oh, well, we'll actually get into that. We're actually going to get into gloves. <laughs> Stick around. See, she knows. She actually knew. You know what? I'm trying to tell Abby. This is foreshadowing. This is foreshadowing. <laughs> Abby knew what she was talking about. So McGee looked
1: into the couple that was murdered for background information and found that six months ago, the husband, Avery Taylor, filed for a multi-million dollar patent infringement lawsuit against Paradigm Industries. Dinozo freaks out because Paradigm Industries is owned by Gary Vanderlicht, who is Detective Kemp's father-in-law.
0: Oh. <gasps> shocked the drama between these two (laughs) men having dated the same woman i loved
1: it ziva and mcgee are on watch with quinn in the interrogation room and quinn knocks on the two-way mirror and asks if anyone's there on the other side ziva goes in and he asks when the police are coming back for him but they aren't coming back for a while she lies and says it's because of the holidays and shifts aren't fully covered but she doesn't want to let it slip that they think that he's innocent quinn knows that she knows more though Quinn asks for a paper and pencil, and because he can't sleep, the sketching helps relax him. However, Ziva is kind of hesitant to give him a sharp object, and Quinn promises not to hurt himself. Then we cut to Christmas morning. There's Gibbs, Tinozo, and Ziva are all at the Taylor's house. If they believe Quinn, they think the police might have missed that Miss Taylor was on the couch before she was moved to the floor by Quinn for CPR. So, they break into this crime scene, and then Ziva goes to investigate the couch, and Gibb says that Kemp was focused on the fingerprint evidence and the bodies, but he didn't focus on the rest of the house. So... That is where they're going to search. Back in the interrogation, Quinn is with McGee. Quinn says he took some art classes in rehab, and McGee asks if Quinn wanted to be a doctor, since he was pre-med. Quinn says that Vietnam changed some things. At the tailor's house, Ziva found fibers, a watch, and a button on the couch. Dinoza finds a safe hidden in the couple's closet, but it's empty. Gibbs tells him to dust the safe, just as an officer comes into the room claiming to be a security patrol. He says the alarm went off, even though they thought that DeNozo had turned it off, and then at the office, Abby shows up and greets McGee at interrogation. She asks how Quinn is doing and asks if he mentioned his daughter. McGee says no, but she says that Melissa is in the lobby because Abby had called her and told her that they had her dad. While I do love Abby, I definitely have to give this a red flag because this is still an open homicide investigation, and he had faked his death for 17 years. Abby is a forensic scientist and not an investigator, so she doesn't have any jurisdiction to be involved in the family in a case like this. Yeah,
0: she is blinded by the She's Christmas See, She's so blinded spirit. by Christmas magic. She is blinded by the miracles of Christmas. She has this fairy tale idea of reuniting them on Christmas yeah, day. I know. And like while I do I sympathize with that this is an open investigation Abby. Please, rein yourself in. Yeah. She
1: begs McGee to tell Quinn that his daughter's there, and then McGee caves, and he goes to tell Quinn. However, Quinn tells him to tell Melissa that he doesn't want to see her, and that she was
0: better off thinking that he was dead. Sad. Big sad. So, back at the scene, the security guard is asking a lot of questions about NCIS, supposedly looking for a job. And the team is wrapping up their investigation when Dinozo finds the murder weapon, a bloody hammer. This is a green flag because he holds the hammer with a cloth instead of just with his bare hands, which is great because now he's not contaminating the evidence. They go back to the office and their boss calls Gibbs and is clearly upset. He says Metro PD gave him an earful for breaking into a crime scene and disrupting the chain of evidence. So we've talked about chain of evidence and chain of custody before, but just as a reminder, this is the chronological documentation that records a sequence of custody, control, and transfer of evidence between personnel. Metro found out when they got a call from the security company that there was a break-in, and then they found out that it was the NCIS team. Their boss tells Gibbs that the police are on their way to get Quinn and take him into custody. Abby ran tests on the Hammer and found that the blood type matches the victims. So blood typing is different from DNA testing. For blood typing, we use the ABO system. Obviously, there's type A, type B, type AB, and type O blood, and these could either be positive or negative types of blood. So determine blood type, it's simply just testing the presence of antigens on red blood cells that are encoded by the ABO locus on the human chromosome 9. This is done, like, relatively fast. It doesn't take as long as DNA testing. So if a person were to have type O blood, he or she will have two O alleles. If a person has type A blood, they'll either have two A alleles or one A allele and one O allele. Because O is kind of like the recessive. If you know anything about Punnett squares and genetics, dominant and recessive, O is kind of like a recessive. So it's not fully expressed if it's with a dominant trait, but if it's two recessive traits, it'll be expressed. The prints on the handle belonged to the victim, but also to Ned Quinn. So Gibbs goes back to question Quinn about the murder weapon, and he says that he was hired to decorate their house, so he brought his toolbox. When he left the scene after finding them dead and trying to save Mrs. Taylor, he left in a hurry, so he didn't pick up his tools. Gibbs says that the hammer was found in the garage, where Quinn was staying. And I give a green flag, because he's showing Quinn photos that they took of the hammer, and they used an L ruler for size reference, and... It just looked like a really nicely lit and really nice crime photo, crime scene photo or evidence photo. And it's it's so important to use a scale in your photos and an L ruler allows for dimensional reference when documenting the evidence and the scene. So every picture we take, there's a scale in there so we can use it for dimensional reference. And actually, I'm going to let Jess talk a little bit more because she recently went to Colorado for a crime scene photography training course. And she learned all about properly using a camera and how to use oblique lighting and alternate light sources and just basically how to properly photograph a scene. I went to
1: Colorado for this training which work
0: did pay for, so I love
1: that. Love it. And over the past year, I've learned so much about forensic photography. Going to an actual training taught me even so much more, actually, how to use the camera and not, like, shooting in auto and shooting in, like, either aperture or shutter mode and all about how much light plays into effect on how your photo looks. If you have too much light, then your picture is super overexposed. If you're trying to get a fingerprint on something, or if there's a really white background, but you're trying to focus on the body that has like a blood spatter thing on it, then if there's too much light, you're not going to get the details that you want in the photo. So learning how to balance light and when to have light and when to not have light is something that we learned about and that I've taught and shown us in the morgue and how to better execute and oblique lighting, if crime scene investigators are trying to get a shoe print on the floor, you bring the light all the way down to floor level and it creates that shadow mm-hmm. so you're able to see the print so much better than if you're just using an overhead light, which was really cool. So I got to do like a lot of that. We got to play with alternate light sources, which classic CSI episodes do all the time, like UV light using the orange filter so you can see where the evidence is in relation to the crime scene. Yeah, I got to do a lot of that. If anybody has never had proper photography training and you are like a crime scene investigator or a police officer, highly recommend going. It teaches you so much that you don't think that you need to know, but you do.
0: Right, and like, just since Jess has come back, since so what, it was the end of October, so it's, it's been like, end of October, been like a month and a half mm-hmm. and we already had pretty good photos, I will say, in the morgue. We had amazing photos beforehand. But like, our photo game has just stepped up so much, because Jess has brought like, s- everything she learned back with her, and like, she mm-hmm. she changed our camera settings, changed the different lightings that we use, and the flashes that we use, and just, just like, I've learned so much just from Jess coming back and teaching me all her fun little tricks now, and like, our photo Photos. We'll go back and compare our photos to even photos from a month or two ago, and we're like, wow, look at how much better they look, and they were already looking good, and so photos are so important, not just at a crime scene, but also in the morgue during autopsies. Yeah, like, if these photos have to get shown to family members, or in a court to a jury, Mm -hmm. having
1: a pristine kind of clinical textbook photo is what needs to get shown. Too much blood, people don't like seeing blood, they don't want to know it exists, So having those clean photos, everything is lit. There's no shadows.
0: Yeah, our photo game has definitely stepped up. Yeah, I'm really proud of it. I'm proud of Jess, too. I'm proud of us. Go us. So back in the show, Kemp is impatiently waiting for Quinn at the NCIS office. He asked for an explanation on why they broke into his crime scene. And Gibbs, in return, asked for an explanation on why Kemp didn't remove himself from this case. Ooh. Burn. He got you. He got you, Kemp. Mic drop. So since Avery Taylor, Mr. Taylor, was suing Kemp's father-in-law, he shouldn't have been involved in this murder investigation. Kemp says that his father-in-law never discusses business with him, and he is very insulted that they suggest that he is somehow involved or should have stepped away from this case. So NCIS hands over Quinn. However, Gibbs doesn't mention to them that they found the murder weapon. And Denozo asks him why, and Gibbs just says, Kemp never asked. Yeah, I love all the all the drama between all these men. Every male has so much drama between them. There's so much drama, so much tea. We get to Abby in the lab, and it's just, I gotta say, is she the only one who works in the lab? I only ever see her. She's the only scientist they have? In the whole NCIS? They just... <laughs> Does she just get her own lab? Are there other labs? Does she work every single day? That's what I was wondering. Maybe maybe she's the only full-time lab tech person. Yeah, that's true. And they have per diem people. But, I mean, she's there on Christmas. She's there on holidays. She doesn't sleep, apparently. Real talk, that's unrealistic for one
1: person to be working in a lab. There's most likely going to be like 20 or more working in a crime lab.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've never worked in a crime lab. I don't know if it's because it's NCIS. I've been to a crime lab, and it's very busy. Yeah. And there's more than one person. But what if it's Abby? She's superhuman. If it's Abby, Abby's like 10 people in one. Because she has the Christmas spirit. Empowering her. (laughs) Christmas spirit and her big gulp. Like, she always has, like, the big gulp from 7-Eleven. Yeah. That's all. That's all you need. So we cut to Abby in the lab. And the hair on the couch did belong to Mrs. Taylor, and she is still working on identifying the fibers. So hair evidence is a great piece of evidence to get, and it can provide a lot of information about the race of the individual. So if the hair has been chemically treated or if it has been cut or pulled in a certain way. So based on the hair, a forensic scientist can determine where on the body the hair came from, as well as the genetic information like blood type and DNA. But for this, the hair needs to still have the root attached. If it's a cut hair and there's no root on it. So you're not going to get DNA. The button that they found on the couch was made from a clothing manufacturer in Scranton, PA. The company makes buttons specifically for police uniforms or security uniforms. The prints on the safe are unknown. Abby hasn't run it through APHIS yet because it isn't a fingerprint. It's a fabric print. Most likely from a glove. Santa? No, I'm kidding.
1: (laughs) Certain types of gloves will leave a print.
0: Yep. So this print was most likely from a glove, a leather glove. Leather and fabric gloves have a distinctive weave, grain, wear, and stitching pattern. So this glove looks like it was an old leather glove with a U-shaped scuff and a frayed seam. I want to talk to someone who's ever, who's like taken a fabric print before.
1: Until I watched this episode and I did like a little more research, I didn't know that gloves like that left a print.
0: Right? I guess it makes sense though. Especially if it's an older glove. Yeah. It's kind of like the stitching is worn. If Gibbs can bring Abby a glove, she can see if the fabric print matches. So McGee is looking into the Taylor security system and finds that the system interfaces with the company's central dispatch via the internet. I love when he said that. (laughs) He was like,
1: the internet.
0: (laughs) Via the internet. Oh, my God. I don't know what year this season came out, but... This is early 2000s. In the early 2000s, everybody was like, "Wow, wow, the internet. The alarm at the Taylor's house was deactivated at 2.17 a.m., and then the alarm was reactivated again four and a half minutes later. Gibbs tells them to call Kemp and have them meet them at the Taylor's house. When they get to the Taylor's, they meet with Kemp, who is just clearly so pissed to be interrupted again on Christmas. They tell Kemp that they're there to arrest the murderer, which Kemp argues against saying that they already have Quinn in the holding cell because he's still convinced that Quinn did it. Gibbs tells Danuzzo to break in, and they show Kemp... The open safe. They say Quinn was in the garage at the time of the murders, and the only reason the bloody prints were everywhere is because he was trying to save the Taylor's lives. Gibbs tells Kemp that last night, while Quinn was in their custody, someone deactivated the alarm, planted the murder weapon in the garage, and then reactivated the alarm. Suddenly, the guard from the security company shows up at the scene again. He is wearing leather gloves, and Ziva asks if he lost a button off of his uniform recently. The button that she found matches the one on his uniform perfectly. Harvey, the security guard, pulls out a taser and they're like, what are you going to do? Tase us? We're five of us. And he's like, yep. And he tases poor McGee. This part was so funny. He was like, I'm going to get away with it. I'm going to tase him. (gasps) Wait, I just remember this is we just talked about how we sidetrack all the time. But I have to say this to you now because I've been saving it for the recording because I didn't know if you knew this. So you're a fan of Hocus Pocus, correct? Absolutely. Do you recognize McGee, the actor? Should I? That's Thackeray Banks baby. He's Thackeray Banks <sighs> no. the human obviously not the cat. But like it's Thackeray <laughs> <The cat>. Banks. <laughs> he tastes a cat. <laughs> Dude, I have no I had no idea. It's Thackeray Banks and I've been like I meant to mention it the last time we watched NCIS for the podcast. And then I I made a mental note. I didn't want to put it in the script because I didn't want you to know. I wanted you to be a surprise. I wanted (laughs) it to be a surprise live on air. Me telling you. That's amazing. That Thackeray Banks just got tased.
1: My (laughs) boyfriend will attest that I know nobody in any show that I watch. I don't know anyone's names. I don't recognize anybody. But my boyfriend, he can see somebody for less than a second and be like, oh, this is from one episode of Game of Thrones where he was in
0: the show for five seconds. I love that because I am Dom in like, so in mine and Costa's relationship, Costa is like you where he doesn't recognize people and I am Dom where I'm like, oh, that's that person from that one show we watched five years ago. (laughs) And he knows he's never been wrong. And I question him every time because there will be one time where he is wrong. (laughs) I love it. I am very much like Dom. Shout out to Dom. And us recognizing actors, although I will give my mom credit for this one because she's the one that pointed out that he was Thackeray Binks to me like years ago because my mom loves NCIS and she pointed it out to me years ago. She knows I love Hocus Pocus. That's so funny. I love that. And now that you know it, you'll never unsee it. it. Like his face, his eyes and his face exactly the same as when he was younger and was Thackeray Binks, the human, not the kid. So poor McGee slash Thackeray Binks is getting tased. And then Ziva and Gibbs tackle and handcuff Harvey. And Harvey just confesses. Because he was a security guard, he knew the security code and broke in to rob the Taylors. When he got there, the Taylors were in the house and he handcuffed the wife, who panicked and went into cardiac arrest. Mr. Taylor attacked Harvey with the only weapon he could find, Quinn's hammer. But Harvey was able to overpower Mr. Taylor and kill him with the hammer. The team gets together at the office and they watch A Wonderful Life and eat caramel corn. However, Gibbs isn't there yet. He's taking Quinn to Melissa's house, and Quinn doesn't want to go in at first. He thinks that he ruined his family's lives. But Gibbs tells Quinn Melissa needs this, and he convinces Quinn to go inside and see his daughter. Quinn pulls out a drawing from his pocket, and he hands it to Gibbs and thanks him. The drawing is of the NCIS team, and it's really cute. It's a really nice sketch of all of them. We see Quinn knock on the door, and his daughter, Melissa, welcomes him inside. Gibbs takes out his phone and calls his own dad to wish him a Merry Christmas. And it's a wonderful ending. However, gonna give it a red flag, because Gibbs just drops this guy off at his daughter's house, and it seems like he's getting off scot-free. Yes, he didn't murder the Taylors, but he still faked his death for 17 years. There's got to be some kind of insurance fraud that he's going to get charged with. Like, he should still be investigated. He should be either taken into custody
1: or charged with something, because insurance fraud, like, there's some type of fine that you have to pay for however much money the family or whoever got because you faked your death. And there's also prison time associated with that.
0: Yeah. He just goes to his daughter's house and's like, hey, I'm home. Right? Gibbs did stay, like, parked in the driveway, so maybe he's waiting to take him back into custody after he's done visiting his daughter. But, like, he shouldn't be allowed to go see his daughter, (laughs) because he should be locked up for insurance fraud. I support it in the show and the fake world scenario but realistically yeah (laughs) i don't know i mean i don't know how insurance fraud crimes work i don't know how they're prosecuted i've never had insurance fraud never committed insurance fraud although i will say i bought this really funny video game i'm so sorry i'm sidetracking again It's called Turnip Boy Commits Tax Fraud, and it's such a funny game. You're a little turnip guy, and you just don't pay taxes, and you got to run around committing tax crimes. (laughs) Do the police come after you? Um, Other vegetables try to come after you. Oh my god. So Mayor Onion tries to come get you to pay taxes, and you just don't. You're just like, no. That guy's like, Quinn. He's like, no, I'm not going to do it. (laughs) Yeah, you're like, no. So I don't know. That's the extent of my insurance fraud knowledge, is playing that dumb video game. (laughs) Uh, More than me. (laughs) Speaking of
1: insurance fraud and faking your own death, we found a kind of hilarious true crime to talk about. So, on March 21st, 2002, teacher and prison officer John Darwin, who is 51 years old, was seen canoeing at Seton Carew. Later that day, he was reported missing when he failed to show up for work for his night shift. A major search and rescue mission went underway with five lifeboats, two Coast Guard rescue teams, a police-fixed-wing aircraft with heat-seeking equipment, and teams of police officers involved in the search. Dave Camish, Deputy Landing Authority for Red Car Lifeboat, said that he searched a 62-square-mile area and up to 10 miles out to sea at night, However, all that they retrieved during the initial search was a double-ended paddle, typically used by kayakers. Camus stated, if a canoeist loses his oar and can't retrieve it, he's at the mercy of the sea and currents and has to sit it out until he's rescued. It wasn't until later that day that the red canoe, called Orca, was found in several pieces in the North Gar area of Seton Carew, in Hartlepool. Hartlepool's inshore lifeboat, the Coast Guard, and a police spotter plane arrived at the scene to investigate. A yellow waterproof jacket was discovered, however, there was no sign of John Darwin. It was presumed that Darwin was dead and a death certificate was issued, stating that he died on March 21st, 2002, the day that he went missing. His wife, Anne Darwin, was able to collect his life insurance, which was £250,000, which is about $310,000 in US dollars. However, there were a few strange occurrences after John's supposed death. The Darwins owned a block of bedsit flats, or apartments, for U.S. people. And a tenant in one of those flats recognized a man who he believed to be John, and he literally said aren't you supposed to be dead? To which this man replied, don't tell anyone about this.
0: I think when we were researching this, you had said it made you think of the meme of Homer Simpson just like shrinking back into the hedges. John
1: Darwin (laughs) is just Homer
0: going back into the hedges like you saw nothing.
1: Yeah. This man who said aren't you supposed to be dead is the literal definition of I'm just gonna mind my own business.
0: Yeah, he didn't report it to police because he didn't want to get involved he's like this
1: is too messy for me i'm out (laughs) in 2004 a man going by the name of john jones applied and obtained a passport using what had been john darwin's known home address this John Jones, was looking into buying property in Cyprus with Anne Darwin, and there was a few other instances of a man very much resembling Darwin being seen around. This John Jones character and Anne Darwin flew to Panama in 06 for a visit, as they were also considering moving there, and they were photographed by a Panamanian property agent, and this photo was posted online. Anne returned to the UK to sell her home in 2007 while John Jones stayed in Panama. The couple bought property near the Panama Canal and had the intention of building a hotel where canoeing holidays could be run. Wow. What a coincidence. The circumstantial evidence against them is just piling up. A police investigation was started in September of 2007 when a colleague of Ann Darwin overheard a phone conversation between the couple, and they became very suspicious, as a normal person would. Except for the guy in the beginning of the story who saw him. Except for the guy who was like, none of my business. So, in case you guys haven't figured it out yet, John Darwin faked his death. Wow! (laughs) Here's my shocked (laughs) face. It turns out that he was staying in a bedsit flat that the family owned. He would stay secluded in a flat on his own during the day, and then he would sneak into his family's home later at night through a secret door that connected the two apartments. The story. I just, it's so bizarre. He and his wife had come up with this plan in order to get his life insurance money. However, he still tried to play innocent by showing up to police in 2007, literally claiming that he lost his memory and he didn't realize that he was John Darwin and that he'd been missing for five years. Cue the sure Jan
0: meme. Yeah. I think they did They did take it seriously and they really tried to investigate if he had amnesia and then it eventually came out. No.
1: <laughs> You're lying. Yeah. And then they arrested him on suspicion of fraud after photographs taken of him and Anne in 2006 in Panama resurfaced and the couple eventually admitted to the fraud, resulting in John being sentenced to six years and three months in jail and Anne received six and a half years in jail. So what really blows my mind about all of this is that this couple, they had two sons who apparently had no idea... That their father
0: was still alive throughout this entire thing. I feel so bad for them. That's awful. That's so traumatic. So horrible. I would be pissed. I would be livid. And I know we were like joking about how crazy and hilarious this is. But like it's these poor kids had to go through this. Well, not kids. I think they were adults by the time that it was found out that it was a hoax. So they might have been adults while it happened. Because I was wondering, too, if they lived in the apartment that he kept sneaking into. Or if they were like moved out of that apartment. Yeah, I
1: don't know, like, what age these sons were. I think
0: one of them was, like, 29 when the trial was occurring, so if he was missing for five years, he would have been, like, 24 at the time they said he was dead, so he might have been living alone. Yeah, but still. It's horrible. So the sons, along with police and media,
1: were duped by the couple and even gave evidence against the mother to the prosecution during trial and having felt so betrayed. I would feel so betrayed, too and Darwin's defense team attempted to claim marital coercion and that John had forced her to act against her will. However, she was found guilty by the jury, and it was revealed that the Darwins had been facing bankruptcy and had come up with this plot as a solution. So partway through their sentence, John and Anne separated and divorced, and after release, John started a new life in the Philippines and has since remarried. Anne, after a period of estrangement from them, eventually reunited with her two sons, and during her time in prison, she collaborated with journalist David Lee on a book titled Out of My Depth and has since spoken very publicly about her involvement in the scam, and she still claims that she was being controlled by John throughout that five-year scheme.
0: I I do want to hear her side of the story. I do. I... I know I've been sitting here casting judgments on the whole situation after reading a couple of articles. So I do, I am very intrigued yeah. by, I might have to read her book. Maybe it was like Munchausen by proxy. I mean, she was, they were bankrupt. She didn't have money. Like, and if he was like, this is our only option, I'm going to do this. You're going to believe it, yeah. I just really, really feel bad for the two sons who thought their dad was dead for five years, then revealed that their parents had just been lying to them for five years. So bizarre. So for this episode, we tallied a total of five green flags and two red flags. So in our opinion, this episode of NCIS does pass in terms of forensic accuracy. If you enjoy our podcast and if you want to learn more about forensics and true crime, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram at Inside the Morgue Pod. So feel free to follow us and DM us with any questions. You can also email us, too. We'll be back next week for a brand new dissection. Bye. Bye.